if the truth were out, I suspect that most of us see, most of us understand life as a kind of gigantic foot race. Billions and billions and billions of us plunging along, thundering along, charging forward in a great cloud of dust that rises up into the sky and glints in the yellowish sun. A fantastically exhausting race. And a race that seems to have no end at all, but a, just a race. Everyone is thundering along together. And once in a while, one poor unfortunate or two or three are thrown off onto the curbstone to lie gasping and, of course, completely outdistanced within the next 30 seconds. This is the concept of life that I suspect is the most valid concept for the New Yorker of today. A gigantic foot race. And, and, and have you ever had the feeling that if you ever stopped to look at the sky, just to look, you know, that they would catch up with you and pass you, go right on past, thundering on past. I have this friend who every time he goes on vacation has little earphones plugged into his ears. He's connected to his office by a set of radio phones. His boat is never out of touch with the world, ever. And constantly they're bringing messages to him, constantly, because he wants to stay in the race and at the same time look at the sky, which, of course, is a complete impossibility because the kind of sky that I am speaking of is the sky that has no messages being brought to you by runners and this is the sky that we're all afraid of I can't get out of touch I, I, I have this friend who once in a while is called out of New York for a couple of weeks for military service or something he's the only guy I know in military service that is in constant touch night and day with his agent he's the only guy I know who gets permission from his first sergeant to call his agent during guard duty and, and, and his, his answering service every two hours has been instructed to call the post service club to let him know whether Zanuck has called. He is never out of touch. The foot race goes on and the great thundering herd, the crashing and the roaring. And yet, you know, there are two kinds of people, really. There are the people who, who once in a while take their mind away from looking at the sky and try half-heartedly to get into the race. Because, you see, there is something in the air that makes it indecent to spend your life looking at the sky. Not only indecent, but vaguely immoral. And so, uh, once in a while, you look up at the sky, and you pull down, and you say, I really should get... And then you make a half-hearted attempt. You call your agent. Is there anything, Charlie? Oh, good to hear from you again. Where you been? Well, I'm around. Uh, you know... And, of course, the implication when he says, where, where you been? I said, oh, oh, you poor sap. And you can hear the thundering roar of the, of the hoofbeats going through his office as you're in touch once again with the great race. And you know you can never catch up, you know. Have you ever seen a dog race? That's one of the saddest of all races to see, you know, because the goal is out in front of them. When you see a horse race, there's an, a complete meaninglessness to a horse race. I mean, they run past. There's no, no meaning. And, and we like to believe that one horse has a rivalry inside of him to beat another. No, 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 no. Come on. Now. That's that poor old idiotic thing that Walt Disney started years ago, that animals are really people in disguise and are somehow better. No, that's, that's silly. Get it out of your mind, out of your skull. Pegeen cats are not people. No, no, no. They are carnivores, dear, and given the chance, they will carnivore on you, uh, which is another story. They're just too small to get away with it. Now, now, 
Incidentally, this is another thing. We have a concept of friends, you know. <laughs> it's like all of us think the natives love us because they come up nuzzling up to the, the little house we've established in the jungle to hand them aspirins and, and rock and roll records. But given the alternative, they would come nuzzling up with something else. And if you're not, if you don't believe this, take a look at the current Life magazine and see all the people being chased over the veldt in Africa. <laughs> Literally being chased. <laughs> it's just a matter of choice, you see. The cat has no choice but to be this friendly little thing that curls in your... But given another, say, 200 pounds, the cat is another story indeed, my dear. <laughs> another story. But that's all beside the point, you see. The horses are just things, you know. They run. But you, you go to a dog race. You see, I learned a lot about this problem of the thundering herd one time when I was inadvertently admitted to a dog track outside of Miami at one point in my career when I was working for the government. I had risen to the rank of PFC rapidly by diligent study, and I was allowed a few hours off from the tether. And somehow or other, I wound up in a dog track of all places when you're in the Army to be. I mean, this is more of, I can't tell you how symbolic this was how meaningful it became. It was could very well have been one of the turning points in my life. Have you ever wondered how in the world you got to be what you are? Where the turning points really were? How come you didn't wind up uh, Harlow Curtis or something? I mean, he's obviously no more brighter than... No bright. Hey, speaking of that, did you read that fantastic thing on the, on the front page of the New York Times, The Triumph of PR Over the Truth? Incidentally, you know what public relations is? You know, most people think public relations is... Is, is is advertising. It's completely different. It's the opposite, you see. Advertising takes that little itsy-bitsy thing that you think is better that you have than other people have, and they blow it up into a fantastic blimp. You see, this is advertising. Oh, no. PR is the opposite. I mean, when you got this rotten thing that's hanging on you like a barnacle, PR steps in and makes it good. You see, they, they do the opposite. And this is quite true, you know. For example, when, when there's a strike in an enormous plant, you don't think the ad men step in, do you, and take out ads about... No, it's the PR men who say that there's just a little momentary riffle in our friendly, wonderful, happy family, but we're all really sitting around the same table pitching the same... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's all part of PR. And it was this beautiful story that kind of exemplifies the dream world of our, our day. There was the president. Did you see it on the front page of the Times? I almost fell sideways right into the right right off the curb on 57th Street when I got this one. It was the funniest piece of Americana that I've seen in a long time. It seems that they nabbed the president of one of the major automobile concerns with 450,000 bucks in his jeans. <laughs> And, and the PR men immediately stepped in and said, uh, Mr. L.B. Watanabe has arrived at a settlement with the Watanabe Motor Company for $450,000, which apparently came about through a mistake in bookkeeping and a mistake in aims. We have reached a settlement. Mr. Watanabe has resigned. <laughs> I could see the settlement. Can't you see them dragging this guy in from his plush office, kicking and screaming, two FBI men on each side, and one guy behind him with a sawed-off shotgun, and they drag him in, and the money is all taken out of his $450,000 by a misunderstanding of the bookkeeping methods. And they lay it out, and they say, All right, Charlie, now what? It's either the pokey or hand the dough over. He hands the dough over, and a settlement has been reached. <laughs> a settlement. 
This is a settlement in our time. You see, it somehow sounds like good, solid, substantial citizens have gotten down and sat down and talked it over. You see, Hitler pointed it out, you know, a long time ago. I must say he did. Hitler said that the, that the way that big people can get by with it is that little people almost always live lives of complete honesty and cannot comprehend people above them being anything other than they are only in spades. He must be more honest than I am, whereas it's almost invariably quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And that's how they got there, you see, <laughs> being a realist. And, not, and by the way, realism has, is not to be confused with cynicism, my dear. So don't get, don't fall into that trap. I mean, this is an old, an old canard that is constantly trotted out by these guys who say, "Oh, those gloom professional gloom dealers." No, it's not the same thing, you know. And so anyway, I'm in this, I'm in this track. I'd like to describe. Most of you have probably never seen a dog race. Let me tell you how a dog race works. Whippets and greyhounds run. And they have this track, it's a little itsy-bitsy track, in a way, you see. And there's all those lights and all these sweating people are sitting around. And they bring the dogs out, and they sort of trot them around back and forth on leashes. And these are just plain, ordinary, dumb dogs, and they're very dumb. Oh, yes, the greyhounds and the whippets are the dumbest creatures this side of an amoeba. And they walk back. I know it's terrible to admit that there's such a thing as a dumb dog, my dear, but there are many dumb dogs, just as there are dumb people. Uh, it's interesting to note that the porpoise is about 14,000 miles above the dog in, in the scale of intellectual values, and, and very well could be several points above man, incidentally. In fact, I was aboard this cruiser, and there was a whole school of porpoises going alongside of us, giving us the old bazoop every five minutes. They'd come out of the water and look at this thing and give us the business again. Man was right back after it. This poor old cruiser had been mothballed with the best of intentions to cut out war. If you, and now we've taken off all the shades and we're back at it again. And the porpoises go on. I mean, who is right, you know? <laughs> poor clowns. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at the dog track, sweating away, wearing my full-dress uniform, my PFC suit, looking out there, and I have my 75-cent bet on number seven, which was a thin, really ribby-looking creature very moth-eaten, and they were walking them back and forth out there. I had never seen a dog race. Let me describe it. And all these dogs were brought together in a little, sort of a little mob and, and put into little chutes, and their, 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 little, their little tethers were taken off, and there was a ringing of a bell. Boing! No, it's not cruel at all, my dear. No, no. Wait till I tell you what happens. There's no cruelty involved. I mean, when is there going to be a society called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Us? I mean, to get us out of this crummy race. I mean, that's what I want. I mean, I'm talking about the great race. You know what the I know what. You know, have you ever had anybody call you on the phone and say, How is it going, Charlie? How is it going? Well, I'm going to ask you, how is it going? You know what the it is that I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be fantastic if it was taken off of your back? If you could forget all those miserable things, you know, when you're, when you're three years old, they begin to drum into you that ambition is the soul of honor and goodness. And as a matter of fact, almost invariably, the world has been undone by ambition. All the worst tyrants in history were the most ambitious people in history. Every one of them, every last single one. Do you remember when Castro came in? I don't want political office, he said. I don't want to have anything to do with the army. I'm going to come back and study law again. 
Yes, sir, that's my baby. Oh, sir, don't mean maybe. And, and, we're, and each one of us is just as bad. Give you 30 seconds in the boss's chair and you would become a fiend. Believe me. An absolute, utter, and complete fiend. It's inside within every one of us. Don't think for a minute you're any different. And the reason you're so wonderful is because you've gotten nowhere. Believe me. You have not been given the chance to wield the axe. Given the chance, look out. Nellie, bar the door. And if you couldn't wield the axe, you would never get into that seat. Ever. It's just the rule of thumb of the nature of the jungle. But nevertheless, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching these dogs. And here is the significant point. Suddenly, up pops in front of these dogs a rabbit. A phony rabbit. Let me tell you, it was the phoniest rabbit I've ever seen. And I, baby, I've seen some phony rabbits in my day. <laughs> I've worked for some. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I happen to work now for a genuine rabbit, but a rabbit, you know. And so, nevertheless, <laughs> I mean, I, I got nothing against rabbits. But then again, I've got nothing for rabbits either. I can tell you this very definitely. I mean, I can take rabbits or leave them alone, you know. And so this, this rabbit popped up out of the track and started to run on a track, a little metal mechanical deal. And these dogs took out like, like idiots after this rabbit, obviously a mechanical rabbit. And they're running like mad. And the rabbit is going, and everything is hot, and all the people jumping up and hollering. And the rabbit is about two jumps ahead of the dogs. And every time the dogs begin to catch up, the guy advances the speed of the rabbit a little bit. He's got a control board. And they run even faster. And then the rabbit goes faster, and they run like mad. And they're finally, they all go across the finish line, and the rabbit disappears into the ground. And they lead him off the track sweating, waiting for the next heat. Next time they'll get that rabbit, each one of them says as he's led into his pen. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar, Daddy? Whose life are we describing? Huh? You know what happens when one of the rabbits when one of the rabbits is caught by a dog? I'll tell you. It happens quite often. Oh yes. The dog catches up with the rabbit and he merely gets knocked on his duff. It is an electrical rabbit that has four electrodes sticking out of the back end, and as soon as the dog catches up, pow, on his keister. He gets up and shakes his head and starts to run again, which somehow, you see, is precisely what we're all involved in. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Speaking of rabbits, this is WORAM at FM New York, and we will be here until, well, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can't... You see, the point being here, there is no point, actually. There's no point. I just told you the story of the dogs. I mean, I could just see this little old lady out in Staten Island. What is this idiot talking about? Would you please change the dialogue and get me some good music? Get her some good music, please. Good American music. Yes. Ah, yes, madam. Good American music for you. There. There we are. Isn't that better, madam? This makes sense, doesn't it? Good sound sense. <laughs> That's much better, Elmer. You've finally gotten rid of that idiot. 
heaven's sakes, I don't know how they allow people of that kind to get on the radio. These beatnik types. Always talking about dog races. I can't stand it. I love dogs. Obviously, Madam loves people. And Shepherd persists in speaking of them. And the poor, senseless rabbits that they pursue endlessly. Endlessly, endlessly through thousands of miles of Walt Disney film. With the same scenery going past them hour after hour. Would you please get that idiot off who keeps interrupting the music? Yes, madam. Poor vous. Just remember... Ladies and gentlemen, in this day, in this moment of our history, 1960, we are playing the Everything is Going to Be All Right polka. By the ten million sighing somatic strings, lulling you eternally in a bath of ambiotic fluid. Of course you've got more automobiles than ever before. And more air conditioners, too. There's no question about that. And you're more, of course, certainly more secure than you ever were. You've made your third payment already on that plot, in that friendly, that friendly eternal resting place out on Long Island, close to the bus station, where your friends can... And it, by the way, it's non-segregated. It's purely democratic. But you have assured yourself of a preferred position by buying early. Oh, don't stop! Don't! 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 Don't stop! Oh, can you imagine the terrible sight of an American who has suddenly been weaned from his mood music? is out there on that dark, cruel sea. Shall I, shall I tell you the awful truth, my dear? That on our warships that are plunging out over that dark, that dark Stygian main, there is a loudspeaker in every gun turret that plays mood music? Yes, I'm telling you the truth. And they're also playing The Barbarians Are At The Gates Waltz. For all of you who have gathered, gathered to dream for just a moment, for a year, for a decade, maybe for a century. This is such pretty music, you you feel better now? It's so nice to get out of the rat race. Have you noticed that... I'd like to point out one thing. Have any of you ever seen rats racing? And we eternally call it the rat race. Actually, what you're talking about is the people race. I've never once seen a rat race another rat. As long as I've been around. And I've been around, you know, baby. 
<laughs> I've been around. Speaking of being around and getting there, the next time you fly the coop, or at least make the poor, pitiful attempt, you know, you can never do it. Don't think for a moment you can. No matter where you go, you are you. And, and the saddest sight is the sight of a tourist a million miles away from home trying to find another him. Trying to find another him, you see. He stands and looks at the Fontana de Trevi, and the great waters are rising and falling, and he's wearing his Tom McCann shoes, and he is still literally, thoroughly, and completely him. He will never be anything other than that. He is always an eternal observer, as we all are. And so the poor Italian coming out of the, out of the dank little doorway just outside of, let's say, the, the, the square of Tritone, he comes out and he has his little postcards and he looks at you and he, he himself can never escape being himself. We are eternally this way. I would suggest that the next time you make the poor pitiful attempt, you do it via Lufthansa. At least you will be lulled for a moment. 14,000 miles above the sea. No wonder we love jet flying. It's the most unreal kind of flying there is. I mean, you don't even see the ground in a jet. You are, you are to totally and thoroughly in limbo. You are. Uh, you know what I'd like to do? I would. I wish some airline. And I'm going to make this suggestion. You know, I sat with a Lufthansa executive, and we talked about this thing. And and they have some of these these beautiful old DC6s. I love the DC6. And these beautiful old Super Connies, which I think is the is the most graceful of all aircraft. I wish they somewhere somebody would dig out a biplane, a real biplane with open cockpits, two open cockpits, you know, a biplane. In case those of you who are completely bred and born in the jets and don't know what a biplane is, a biplane is a thing that has. It's I'll tell you, it's, it's like if you took a piece of the Venetian blind, you know, and you cut it off and it's got two things sticking out from each side and it's got a great big thing sticking up on the back and wheels hanging down. I'd like to ride in an airplane again that has wheels hanging down, you know. And get in the, I'd get in the front cockpit and they'd, they'd strap me in, you see, thoroughly, complete, just strap me in with my leather jacket and a great big cloud of sheepskin up around my neck. And then I would have my leather helmet pulled down over my eyes, great big goggles, and I would sit there, and, the, and, the, and they, of course, there would be a white silk handkerchief that would flow back in the breeze. And I'd sit there, and the, and the pilot would get behind me, and he'd say, we're taking off. And he'd holler, contact! And the, and the mechanic would grab a hold of the prop. And, and by George, we'd be flying. And away we go. Can you imagine what, what, a, what a sensation it would cause if one airline, I don't care what airline it would be, just name it. Lufthansa, TWA, KLM announces that they have a biplane flight now available for the true aficionados who really want to do it. You know, there would be a line of eight million guys waiting to fly via open biplane. I mean, I mean, the, the dangerous kind of plane that could very well be lost off Greenland forever. I, I'd be, I would be the first in line. I don't know why, but I would be there. Wouldn't it be a tremendous thing? And I'm sitting there talking to this guy. I said, you know, why don't they keep a couple of these old, these old, these old, you know, the real airplanes on the routes for people who like to sit for 14 hours, you know, who just like, like, the, like the old steamers. I, I, I can't think of anything better than to take a, a long one-week steamship ride. Really, seriously. Or, or to fly for 14 hours over this airplane, this airplane that just quietly flies along. But you get into a jet. Now, I've flown into the interior of Europe on a jet. 
It's a strange sensation. To those of you who have never flown a jet, it is the most unreal sensation that you can imagine. It is really indicative of our time. That, that flying to Europe has been reduced, I think, to uh, a kind of, uh, you know, like throwing away a, an old used Kleenex or something. You don't even think twice about it. Let me tell you about the first time I saw Kleenexes. You know, it's funny. I remember these, some of these things make, make a vivid impression. I had this teacher named Miss Shields who was very advanced. Uh, Miss Shields had already in that period given up Winnie the Pooh and was deep in, in Little Orphan Annie and Annie Rooney. She, was, she used to read us out by the hours. She used to read us Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. And I remember one day Miss Shields, who, who, had, who had kind of yellow, you know, the kind of hair that, that is wiry, that sticks out like a great cloud from the head. Uh, she was always wearing a kind of a Brillo pad made out of hair. And Miss Shields is, is rimless glasses and thin and transparent. And Miss Shields is eternal. She was the only one I ever known, ever, ever known, really, who could honestly weep over Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Ann. Literally weep. And great tears would flow down from behind her rimless glasses when she's reading the story of the balloon fairies. And she's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was the first, she was really ahead of her time. I mean, she could have been a good, she was a, she could have been a woman commentator today. Way ahead of her time. And so, Miss Shields is standing up there reading us Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. And, and I'm noticing that as she finishes each, each paragraph that was particularly poignant, she would take something out of her purse, a white handkerchief, and blow her nose. That ladylike nose blow, you know, that, that little, that little wiping back and forth. And she had one of these razor-like noses that bent from side to side when she would wipe. This is a librarian nose. And she would wipe it back and forth, and then she would tuck it into her into her purse again. And she would go, and Raggedy Ann said to Raggedy Andy, oh, my, the pirates are after us now. Please come away with me, Raggedy Ann. And she would read this, and she would go on, and she would blow her nose again. And then occasionally she would reach into her purse and take out another one and drop the others into the wastebasket. I couldn't imagine what she was doing. I came from a bandana handkerchief, a real bandana family. And big red things and yellow and green. I, I haven't had a good blue bandana in years. And, and this is the kind of fan. And she's throwing these things away. Do you know what I did after class? I'll tell you exactly. It's an awful thing. This is a real confession. I looked in the wastebasket to see what they were. And they were paper. I had never seen Kleenex before. And it was kind of a shock. You know, it was the beginning of the plastic world. And I went home and I said, hey, Mom, Miss Shields blows her nose in paper. I had the wrong idea. I thought it was another kind of paper, actually. And she says, well, yes, yeah, she's using Kleenex. I said, Kleenex? What's Kleenex, Ma? She says, she's standing over there by the sink in her rump-sprung bathrobe, and she says, Kleenex is paper handkerchiefs, Ma. I said, but doesn't Miss Shields have real handkerchiefs? She says, Kleenexes are real handkerchiefs. I says, Ma, they're paper. She says, but they're real handkerchiefs. I says, but what about my handkerchief? My, I take my bandana out of my pocket. She says, that's a bandana. I said, but it's a handkerchief. She says, no, it's a bandana. Miss Shields is using Kleenexes. My mother was going the way of all flesh. And little did I know it. And everywhere, everywhere, every. Of course, it was the beginning, you see. It was the beginning of the slow transposition to where today now you can buy a sweater that is called Virgin Nylon. <laughs> you see, 
that it, it's gotten rid of that old crummy wool stuff that we used to have, you know, that old miserable cashmere. And, and now we have virgin nylon. Can you imagine a guy who can't afford virgin nylon? <laughs> and so please, please, don't, don't, don't leave me. Hey, hey, Ed. Hey, hey, whoo, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Don't. I, I, I need a little shot of dream here. That's better. Give it a little while. That'll make it better. That's what we need. You see, the truth comes out in the most unexpected of all places and tells about our deep-seated fears. As you know, almost all of you are aware that, that, that womankind has almost completely abdicated her role in the, in the world of today. Almost completely. But her conscience will not allow her to do so. Man himself, and I'm speaking in the small letter man, he too has abdicated his role. His role of the slayer of saber-toothed tigers, the cracker of clamshells, the ranter and the roarer against the great bolts of lightning that come out of that darkening sky. He no longer rants. He no longer roars. He no longer feels the dark, the dark, cutting surge of overwhelming anger. This was man's role. Woman's role has too been abdicated. And so we must somehow gain, if possible, the vicarious substitute. And so man after man buys magazines where women fold out in a three-color spread that remind him of the days when he really chased real women. And he calls it Playboy. Women buy magazines that remind them that there were once days when they were women. And they grated cabbages. And they broke eggs in the bowls. And so they too remind themselves by hanging bronze-plated cabbage graters on the walls of imitation pine-paneled kitchens. You walk through the kitchen on your way to the Chinese restaurant night after night in many east side apartments. The kitchen has become a repository for a kind of museums of consciences. And hanging on the walls are great bronze-plated pans that once were used for boiling potatoes and are now only used to look at. I even know one chick who has a bronze-plated meat grinder. How basic can you get? The kind that Aunt Min used to stand and shove great chunks of beef and, and, sat and grind up the bone and the gristle and all for Uncle Carl's hamburger. She did it just to bug him because she'd thrown his teeth down the air shaft months before and he just sat there. One time he gummed one of her hamburger balls for over four weeks, just gummed it and sucked. But Aunt Min knew what she was doing. It was a war of attrition all the way. And I know this chick on the east side who has a bronze-plated meat grinder. It's right out of the American home. A handy decorating hint. You see? Oh, yes. I foresee the day when automatic washers will become the, the antique of our time. The automatic washer. Because there is a man who brings the linens and who leaves. There is a man who brings the dish towel and then leaves. The dish. I know apartments where the dish towel hangs only as an old artifact just hangs on the wall there, and it's beautifully embroidered. It hasn't seen a dish other than those dishes that are hanging on the wall for years. It's like the appendix. 
And so womankind has, too, abdicated her role. Just as man no longer finds it possible to be angry, to stalk the wary saber-toothed tiger next to the water cooler. We have both abdicated. And the truth is coming out. Please, give me a little more of that truth music. Truth. American version. Did you read, did you read the little news note that came of all places in the Trenton Evening Times? Friday, May 20th, 1960. I have included this in my great catalog of how things really were. So that 10,000 years from now when people dig up our art, they get no idea what the world is like looking at Henry Moore, believe me. They'll get no idea looking at Picasso. But they will get an idea of how we are when they read this. Listen to this. Speaking of womankind abdicating her place and mankind abdicating his, we have to have a symbolic, a symbolic conscience, though, that reminds us of once we, once we were, this we were. A little note from the Trenton Evening Times. I read, I quote, Have you ever noticed that more and more of the gasoline signs hanging outside service stations are oval in shape? Have you ever noticed that? And many of them are pure white and glow in the dark, oval shaped. What does that remind you of? <laughs> yes, sir, Lee Bob. It is no accident. An industrial designing firm applied Freudian psychology and concluded that since over 60% of the customers are female, the gasoline signs ought to appeal to them. And what does that ovoid shape remind you of? It's a three-letter word that often pops up in New York Times crossword puzzle and begins with an O. The second letter is a V. The oval shape was chosen because it is said to quote, and we are quoting the industrial firm, a symbol of the mother relationship, the egg and the home. As mother whistles down US-1 in her Jag 140D. Mother! Mother! Mother, we salute thee! Would you uh, please fill her up, young man? <laughs> and Mother reaffirms her motherhood once again to the tune of $4.61 worth of 105 proof. Have you noticed gasoline is becoming a Freudian thing? Have you noticed this? Oh, yes, gasoline is no longer sold on its, on its octane or what it does. Oh, indeed. There is a series of TV commercials that scared the wits out of me. It shows this desperate-looking guy. He's sitting there, and he's got a crew cut and a low forehead. Believe me, he's got a low forehead. Have you seen this guy? He's a desperate, and he's got this nervous-looking chick sitting next to him, and he's looking around very, very, uh, very impatiently. He's looking for the guy, obviously. He's looking for the gas station attendant, and he's pulled into a, a gas station. He's looking around, very, that nervous, irritated, rotten look that you see on the face of everyone running after the mechanical rabbit. And the announcer says, Men on the go, men of action, choose Watanabe gasoline every time. And he's the guy that I'm always afraid of every time I'm driving. He's that guy that goes whistle, you know, the cuts, rah, rah, that, 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 that fantastic character that leaps from stop sign to stop sign and from stop street to stop street. 
He now has a special gasoline made for him. Men on the go. And there will be a gasoline one day, believe me, that will be sold to the contemplative man. Chooses Walden gasoline. And it'll show a guy driving along to the countryside thinking beautiful thoughts. And then there will be one there will be one sold to the concerned man. And there'll be this guy reading he's reading the New York Times editorial, and you see him. And and coming out of his TV set next to them is the is the grim, concerned face of Edward R. Murrow. The concerned man uses realist gasoline. your eye out, baby, for the gas station of your choice. <laughs> Be sure it has that right. Oh, of course, you can't help but you know, everywhere. everywhere. A guy said to me the other day, he says, you know, has it ever occurred to you that, uh, that we all might be the victims of subliminal propaganda of one kind or other? And, and he says, wouldn't it be something, wouldn't it be fantastic if somebody decided to use this? I said, but we wouldn't know it if they were. Remember, that's what the whole idea of subliminal is, Jack. He says, yeah. He looked at me. Yeah. And he was wearing his washable, wearable suit. And he was wearing his washable, wearable life. And he was walking, striding into the sunset on Madison Avenue. And you could just, you could just see the, you could just see the very edges, the very tips of the great the great rivers on either side of us. Way down, when you look west and you look east, you can see those eternal waters. And speaking of the eternal waters, do you remember the story of that ship? That ship that, that sank out here in the East River just a few weeks ago? The ship was coming along, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning. Get this now. This is right here in the heart of good old friendly Manhattan. And you, of course, are aware that the, that the street department now, get this, Jack. The street department is still maintaining hunting teams who spend their nights hunting throughout the water supply system of New York, dark, deep under the subways, way down under your feet, hunting alligators. Do you know that there are alligators living right under the, right under the surface of Manhattan? Everyone says, oh, no, that can't be. Oh, yes, it is. And you know where they came from? There was a tremendous fad, if you remember a few years ago, people buying alligators and sending them back from Florida. Ah, you remember those? For a dollar and sending them back to Cousin Min in the Bronx? Yes. Well, what happened after you, after you have an alligator around the house for a while, you get kind of tired of the look on its face. And, and what do you do with an alligator? You don't throw them out, you know, you just don't toss them out in the garbage. Well, what happened with most people is what where most, you know, it's a funny little thing. Yes, they wound up in the water supply. Guess how? But the thing about an alligator, baby, is that he's amphibious. And more than that, he's highly adaptable. 
And that water supply system down under the streets of New York is kept at a constant temperature, you know. It does not freeze down there. And so they grew to great size until this very day, right under your feet, 14-foot alligators are stalking. And little men with little lights on their helmets are looking for them. Just thought you ought to know. And so that, that ship is going along the East River at 3 o'clock in the morning, right by the U.N. building, the central heart of the nerve system of all assembled humanity, when suddenly something on the bottom of the river, something on the bottom of, of, of the East River, that friendly old river out there, ripped the bottom of this boat right out. Do you know how much of a rip it made in it? There were 20 compartments in this ship, which was almost 800 feet long. It ripped a line right down the middle of the ship through 16 of the compartments, like a gigantic can opener. And at last reports, they still hadn't found what it was. Under the East River. All the guy could say, we're sinking, Charlie! And they drove it up on the beach right next to the, <laughs> symbolically enough, right next to the, to the U.N. building. Where better for a sinking ship to be pulled up to remind the natives, to remind the denizens of what it's like and the water is pouring in. Speaking of the water, we have with us tonight the paper book, the paper book gallery. Deep doubt, down, down, dark in the heart of seething Greenwich Village. And it does seethe. And I would like to recommend that if you're taking, if you're taking the village thing tonight, if you've got nothing to do, I can think of no better place to go to spend your... You know, interestingly enough, the paper book gallery is becoming recognized more as a place to go than as a place to buy books. Isn't that sad? <laughs> the guy says, oh, yeah, I went to the paper book. I says, what did you get? He says, oh, I don't buy no books. He just goes and stands around with Schopenhauer glaring at him and Kant and, and <laughs> Kierkegaard. And incidentally, the one who would understand that most of all is Kafka, looking down at this poor clown bathing himself in the aura of books. Well, if you'd like to do it, it's the Paper Book Gallery down on Sheridan Square. And remember, it's the Paper Book Gallery. They have deliberately placed four steps in which you go down to get into this place. It reminds you of the mortality of which you are part of. You can't escape it. And you will find that this is undoubtedly one of the most intriguing shops of any kind you've ever been in in New York City. There are two of them. There's one on 3rd Street. And incidentally, the one on 3rd Street... Uh, by the way, the gallery will be open till 2 o'clock this morning. The greatest collection of paper books in the, uh, probably in America. But two doors down from the one on 3rd Street, at 82 West 3rd Street, is Ying and Yang, which unquestionably, to me at least, is one of the finest oriental restaurants in New York. And according to Gourmet Magazine, is one of the finest five Oriental restaurants in the United States, which I will not go so far as saying. You know, I'm beginning to have a great unfaith in, in, in reviewers. Reviewers obviously are emotional people. I wonder what Walter Kerr thinks every time he walks past that sign that says, a blah, 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 musical I've seen in years. You know the one with a four-letter word in it. <laughs> and it's literally one of the worst. <laughs> so what happened that night anyway? Too many olives. But nevertheless, Yin and Yang at 82 West 3rd Street is truly one of the finest oriental restaurants in America. And they are open on Sunday. You'll find, and it's very difficult to find a restaurant, a good restaurant, open in New York on Sunday. And if you're going out for dinner, you'll find them open tonight till 10. You'll find them open, oh, 10, 11, they're open to 1. And you'll find them open till 2 o'clock in the morning, most weeknights. And they open at noon tomorrow, and they will be open until midnight.
And this is 82 West 3rd Street, Yin and Yang, and they have a bar. They have a bar. Now, now, now. Don't so. You see, he jumped over his air conditioner. It was only a drop of 35 feet. That's the point, you see. Over the air conditioner. Over WOR Radio, your station for news. A man with drive. A man with drive. Yes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.